Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today, we talk with Ermias Kebriab. He is the Associate Dean and Professor of Animal Science at the University of California, Davis. He holds the Sensen Endowed Chair in Sustainable Agriculture. He conducts research in animal nutrition, mathematical modeling of biological systems, and the impact of livestock on the environment. Among his many accolades, he co-chaired the Feed Additive and Methane Committees of the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, and has authored over 250 peer-reviewed articles. He has received several awards, including Excellence in Ruminant Nutrition and International Agriculture from the American Society of Animal Science, and the 2022 Chancellor's Innovator of the Year Award. He is a regularly invited speaker, including a TED Talk that has been featured as one of the must-watch climate talks of 2022. His research was in the top 10 of all research conducted at the University of California system in 2021. At the end of the episode, we have a second conversation about a new $70 million grant that he, along with top researchers at UC Berkeley and UCSF, received to engineer the microbiome with CRISPR. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Ermias Kibriab. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We would love to hear a little bit more about your story. How did you get to Davis? What got you interested in agricultural greenhouse gas emissions? And overall, how did you end up where you are today? Yeah, sure. So uh, I was um, uh, born in, in Ethiopia and then I grew up in, in Eritrea. And um, I was always interested in, uh, in, in animals, mainly because uh, of my love for milk and, and you know, interest in, in having uh, milk available. But at the time, uh, we were not able to source the milk on, on a daily basis. So that kind of uh, get me going and thinking about uh, why can't we have this on a daily basis? Um, and so there was a, a productivity shortage. I mean, it still is in most of the uh, uh, low to middle income countries. There's not, not enough animal source food and, um, in general, and particularly uh, milk and milk products as well. Um, so that's really what got me interested and in pursue a career in uh, biology and, and then, uh, in agriculture, uh, particularly in, in animal agriculture. Um, and then when I went to the UK to do a master's and a PhD, uh, I pursued this, but uh, uh, I, w I got kind of introduced um, the other aspect of um, livestock production, which is the contribution to the greenhouse gas emissions. Um, the, the Kyoto Protocol, I think it was 1992, when uh, there was an attempt to make a, an international agreement uh, to try to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions. And so that's what kind of brought it to the fore to try to understand that. Uh, but the good thing is productivity and emissions are kind of um, different sizes of the same coin. So if you work on one, you invariably work with the other as well. Um, so that's why I started working on both the productivity improvements, but also looking into the environmental aspects. Um, and then after I finished my PhD, I moved to Canada to do work on agriculture and even more on, on greenhouse gas emissions. And then finally, about 13 years ago, I moved to Davis and working on the similar issues, uh, primarily greenhouse gas emissions, reducing greenhouse gas emissions from livestock, understanding the factors that affect greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so uh, being in Davis really gave me a lot of opportunity to pursue uh, different aspects of, uh, of this field of study. Uh, at the beginning, I was mostly doing 
mathematical modeling, so developing models that are now being used by uh, the, uh, the state of California, the uh, EPA, and also the IPCC, uh, so the International Panel for Climate Change. Uh, so that that was really the the main thrust of the uh, area that I was pursuing. But then, about five six years ago. Uh, there was a really concerted effort to come up with uh, solutions and uh, using feed additives to reduce emissions. So that kind of uh, changed a little bit my program. And uh, from maybe about 90% uh, doing modeling uh, work, now we are kind of the other side, which is about 80-90% experimental work and then a little bit of modeling as well. And could you talk at a very basic level what are greenhouse gases and why their emissions matter? Greenhouse gases uh, are those gases that um, uh, have an effect on the uh, on the environment. So if they are uh, in the atmosphere, uh, basically what happens is that uh, they will kind of um, limit the the amount of heat that's been um, emitted out. So the absorption of heat increases as you increase greenhouse gas emissions. So. Uh, the main ones are carbon dioxide and methane and nitrous oxide. Those are the, the three main ones that are uh, agriculturally relevant. Uh, methane is about 25 uh, to 30 uh, times more um, as, as effective as uh, uh, as carbon dioxide. So the radiative force or the the ability to trap heat in the in the atmosphere is uh, that much uh, higher on a hundred year basis. Uh, but if you look at it, methane doesn't really stay in the atmosphere for a hundred years. It's uh, converted into carbon dioxide and water in about 12 years. So the 12 years is the average. So within 20 years, the effect is gonna be over 80 times more than carbon dioxide. Uh, but the difference between carbon dioxide and methane is carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere for a very long time. As uh, into thousands of years, uh, once it's released, it stays in the atmosphere for a long period of time. Um, so although you can say methane is much more effective in trapping heat than carbon dioxide, that effect only lasts uh, 12 years. So mm. th that's the, the median. Um, nitrous oxide, on the other hand, it's effective uh, about 265 times more effective than carbon dioxide. So it's a lot more than both methane and carbon dioxide. And it stays in the atmosphere for about 100 years. So you can compare uh, carbon dioxide and, and nitrous oxide um, over a 100 year period because nitrous oxide stays in the, in the atmosphere for that long. Uh, so nitrous oxide is uh, a lot more uh, potent in terms of being uh, the gas that traps the uh, the most heat. I mean, there are other gases, you know, sulfur, sulfur hexafluoride, for example, uh, is, has uh, much more effect, but we don't really release those gases very often. Uh, we have quite a bit of uh, carbon dioxide, you know, all, all the combustion and uh, that happens uh, for electric generation, transportation, and uh, all of that is carbon dioxide. And then we have methane mostly coming from um, the p petroleum industry, um, livestock, landfills, uh, coal mines, abandoned coal mines in particularly. So all of that, they, and then they have the natural. So these are the anthropological uh, sources of methane. But we have natural source of methane, mostly wetlands and uh, permafrost and all that will produce methane as well. Uh, so th th those are really the three main greenhouse gases that we worry about and we try to reduce as much as we can. What's the percent breakdown on each one of those? So 
how much is methane contributing to our issues versus carbon dioxide? Because I know you said the last different lengths. Yes, exactly. So the, the majority, I think it's about 80% or so, is uh, carbon dioxide. And then the rest would be between methane and, uh, and ethyl oxide. Okay, that makes sense. So pivoting towards what you're studying and researching right now, could you give us a look at that at like a high level? Yeah, so what we're trying to do right now is to try to reduce um, enteric methane emissions uh, through mainly feed additives. So the way that we do that is uh, uh, the methane emissions from, from cattle mostly are from enteric emissions, which is the emissions di directly from the cow that's mostly eructed out or, or belched out. Mm -hmm. And then you have the manure as well. Uh, so ruminants, they they produce methane or they, they have this uh, uh, symbiosis with um, microbes that would utilize hydrogen and, and convert it into, into methane. So the methane that comes from enteric sources um, contributes so in terms of if you look at the breakdown, the, the enteric would be much higher than, than manure, depending on the species, particularly um, like in beef cattle, uh, mostly it's enteric. In dairy cattle that are farmed intensively, usually uh, probably about 50-50, maybe a little bit higher on the enteric side of, uh, of things. And then from uh, non-ruminants like pigs and chickens and all that, it's mostly from manure. Um, and so it's from the other end that the, that the methane is coming up. Um, in my lab, mostly we are working on enteric from beef cattle and uh, dairy cattle. And what we do is uh, we looked at different uh, uh, feed additives that have the potential to reduce emissions, and uh, and then we, we we test them in vivo. Um, but but before we do in vivo, we work with uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Matthias Hess, who is a microbiologist and uh, does um, emission work in vitro. And so before we actually take the, those feed additives out into the field, we test them in the laboratory conditions. So that's in vitro work. So the in vitro work involves uh, using those little, uh, those, a small amount of uh, feed additives into bags. And then we take rumen fluid from, from the animal and then incubate them together and measure the amount of methane or the amount of gases that's been produced because when it's fermented, you produce gases. And those gases are collected and then analyzed how much methane, how much carbon dioxide and, uh, and other gases are, are there. Um, and then we can see if any of the feed additives will have an impact on that because it's kind of a, um, a rumen simulator. Right? Mm -hmm. You're basically trying to simulate what will happen in the rumen. It's not going to be the exact sim simulator, although you're taking samples from the rumen itself you're not able to culture all the organisms that would naturally be occurring in, in, in a real rumen. But, that, but at least you're going to get a lot of the, the uh, microbes there. So it gives you a good indication whether this feed additive has any potential to reduce emissions or not. So if it works in vitro, it has the potential to, to work in vivo as well. But, but uh, there is no guarantee. There's, there are some that work really well in vitro, but they don't work in vivo because you know, there's, you're not able to completely replicate what happens in, in a real animal. Uh, so we work, so, so it will give us a good idea of if, if it has a potential or not. So we uh, work in collaboration and we test this in vitro 
and we see if there is any chance at all. And uh, if the in vitro results are promising, then we take it out into the field and then we, we do work in, in vivo. And then we try to estimate what are the emission reductions. And then we try to ask questions about, you know, under what conditions do they work? Because sometimes, um, depending on the diet, it, they may work well or, or not, not as much. So we need to figure out what are the conditions for this feed additive to work well. Could you speak to some of the characteristics of the food additives that have shown success? Yeah, so uh, in general, you can, you can group the feed additives into uh, two main categories. One is those that are inhibitors, which means that they inhibit the process of methanogenesis. And so they primarily affect the methanogens that are responsible for producing methane in, in a large part and they inhibit that process. Uh, that the inhibition could be through um, the inhibition of a specific enzyme. Um, usually the, there's an enzyme called the MCR, um, so the so methyl coenzyme reductase that is uh, needed for the conversion of uh, carbon dioxide into, into methane. And so those inhibitors they have um, similar type of compounds that would interfere with this uh, normal process. Um, uh, a good example is with seaweed, for example, we have bromoform, and bromoform uh, is a methane analog that would in uh, interrupt this process and, and inhibit that. Uh, another fidelity called 3-NOP also has a compound that would inhibit this uh, this process as well. So these are sort of the inhibitors directly affecting the uh, methanogens and uh, um, mostly n nothing else. And then you have those that work kind of indirectly that are they they modify the rumen environment, uh, basically shifting some of the processes so that you have less hydrogen available for methanogens to use them, you know, to com to be converted into methane. Uh, so that this can be achieved in different ways. You know, we can achieve them by having um, some essential co essential oils uh, or um, other compounds that uh, shift the metabolism and produce more of the metabolites that that actually use hydrogen. Which means that there's the net reduction in hydrogen and therefore net uh, lower hydrogen availability in the rumen and, and, and that way you have less methane. On the other hand, uh, you can also have um, products that would use, use hydrogen. For example, you have nitrate. Uh, nitrate will utilize hydrogen and it will be um, uh, converted into other compounds and that way it will take away hydrogen from the from uh, methanogens. So they basically compete with the methanogens for the hydrogen. Um, and that way you have a reduced amount of uh, methane that's coming out as well. So those are sort of the, the main mechanisms by which uh, the, those, those, those are working. Uh, you could have other you know, secondary compounds, plant secondary compounds like tannins and saponins and, and others that are also uh, behaving in a, in a manner where they will deprive hydrogen from methanogens. Where are the methanogens and also are they bacteria or are they part of the animal itself? How does that work? 
Yeah, so methanogens are, uh, are actually quite a very old um, uh, kingdom. They are in the kingdom of Archaea. Mm-hmm. They are not. They're not uh, part of the bacteria. Uh, mm-hmm. They are a different. They are a different kingdom entirely. Uh, they have. They, they have been around for a very long time, and they. They uh, uh, basically are. They work in partnership with other microbes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they. The the, uh, the the rumor has you know millions and trillions of different of microbes working. The reason that uh, a ruminant can break down. Uh, cellulose is because there are a lot of bacteria that act on it. Uh, so they have cellulolytic bacteria that sort of break down the the uh, fibers, and they have aminolytic bacteria that sort of uh, utilize starch and other things. So by working together, that's, that's how you know uh, grass and you know alfalfa and all this highly indigestible uh, feed that the, the bacteria are the ones that that are. Uh, breaking this down and converting it into usable products like volatile fatty acids. So the animal gets about 60% of its energy from the breakdown of this feed in the rumen. And it's all the bacteria that are doing that. And then, you know, the bacteria will pass along into the small intestine and and then they get breaking down themselves and they become source of food for the for the animal. So it's basically the animal is working with millions and trillions of different types of microbes and fungi and, and all that. Um, and they help break down the food and they, they themselves grow. And then, you know, after they grow, they, they kind of washed out from the rumen. And then you have other bacteria that continues this process. So as long as there's food, you have a growth of uh, microbes there all working together, different aspects. Like the protozoa, for example, you know, they, they break down and they release a lot of hydrogen. So you see a lot of methanogens living close by protozoa because now they can get the hydrogen from protozoa and then they can use that hydrogen for, for energy to grow themselves and then they produce methane. Um, there's actually one way of reducing methane would be to get rid of all the protozoa, but then yeah, it's very difficult to keep in that state. Uh, an animal in, with, you know, it's called defaunation, uh, getting rid of the protozoa, but it's it's very difficult to do it in, in practical terms, and also it might compromise the degradation of feed as well. Mm. So you want the feed to be degraded. You want to happen. You know, you don't want to mess with the degradation of the feed because that's the source of energy. But um, ideally, you know, you you want the hydrogen to be used for something else. You know, there are other microbes like acetogens that use hydrogen, but they don't produce methane. So you would want those to be promoted, but unfortunately. Uh, the th- thermodynamics uh, favors the methanogens uh, for the use of hydrogen. So the acetogens cannot compete with methanogens mm-hmm. uh, because uh, methanogens are much more efficient and thermodynamically favored. And this all happens in the stomachs. Yes, exactly. Okay. So the, you know the cows have a, a four-chambered stomach, right? Mm-hmm. So this happens in the first chamber, the rumen, mm-hmm. um, and then it kind of passes down to the other chambers. Okay. And are there concerns that the gut bacteria in these farm animals, in these cows, will adapt over time to the feed additives, say the seaweed, and reduce its efficacy? Yes, there's definitely a, a potential to do that. And there are some f- feed additives that have been shown to, to, uh, to uh, the bacteria adapt to them. Um, but uh, so that, that's why we need to test feed additives for a fairly longer period of time. 
that's one of the questions we had when we did the first study on uh, on seaweed. It was too short to to tell if a micro microbes would be able to adapt or not. So we devised a much longer study for over 21 weeks, and and then over that 21 weeks, uh, that's enough time to for the bacteria to actually be able to to adapt to it if they were going to adapt to it. And we haven't seen any evidence of the, the microbes adapt to it, at least within 21 days, uh, 21 weeks. Mm -hmm. But we would be able to. I think ideally you would want to do this for. Uh, like in a dairy cattle for a full lactation, uh, so 360 days, or in a beef cattle, you want to do it for like a year to have a, a confidence that uh, there is no adaptation going on within uh, within the animals. But yeah, I mean, part of the the way that the rumen is designed is that it adapts to different conditions. So when you change diets and and all that, then it adapts to that to those conditions. So with the feed additives, also yeah, depending on how it works. There is a chance that the the microbes might be able to adapt to it, but uh, but you have to uh, have to test for it. Could you speak to the different types of feed cows are given? So, if we're thinking about grass fed versus the corn and soy based products, mm. how does methane production differ between those two? And then, how does the efficacy change of the feed additives depending on which feed is being used? Uh, yeah, so uh, depending on their stage of life, where, is, where, where they are in the stage of life, they are fed different type of diets. If you are working with dairy cattle, um, at the beginning when they're heifers, uh, the first two years of life, they would be fed mostly on high fiber, high forage diet. Um, when then when they are lactating, you have to provide them more nutritious diet, so uh, there's more concentrates uh, corn and and, uh, and other things that that will come in, into it uh, soybean it's not really used in in ruminant production mm -hmm. um, there's actually more soybean used for human consumption than it is for ruminants uh, mostly the, the the vast majority of soybean is used in uh, swine and in in poultry uh, production systems um, but you still have you still need a source of protein for ruminants and um, Alfalfa has a high uh, protein content uh, that uh, people use, or um, um, you can use other alternative sources of protein as well. Uh, Cottonseed, and um, there's a number of byproducts that uh, are used in, in the ruminant industry because ruminants are able to, to degrade uh, a lot of that. Um, in, the, in the beef industry, you have a lot of uh, high fiber. Uh, forages and grass uh, for for the majority of the time that they are they're on uh, and then towards the last few months maybe three five months they you shifted into a high uh, so high starch diet uh, sometimes up to 90 percent will be corn and 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 things like that were very high uh, easily digestible kind of uh, diet uh, so yeah Diets could be quite different depending on the production system and and depending on um, what type of animals you have and and in the stage of the lactation as well, uh, and that affects feed additives. So the effectiveness of feed additives affected by their what you've been given, uh, what's the diet, and what we've seen in terms of inhibitors, for example, um, the higher the the fiber content, the lower the efficacy. 
Um, and then when you in increase the concentrate levels, usually the the percentage of uh, uh, the effectiveness kind of increases with that as well. Um, with uh, uh, rumen modifiers, um, it's it, it depends. Sometimes you also see in, in high fiber diets where there is a lot of hydrogen, then the, the, there's opportunity for the hydrogen to be captured by, by something else. So you might get a better um, reduction there as well. So it depends on the mode of action of the feed additives and it depends on, on, on the diet uh, as well. So it's really important to test additives with uh, different levels of fiber in, in the diet. So that's really the main factor is fiber because methane, um, that the two main things that affect methane production, one is the intake, how much they are eating, and the second one is uh, the quality of the diet. And you can have a proxy, uh, a fiber content of the diet can give you a good idea of the quality of the diet. So um, it's, it's good to test feed additives at different levels of uh, fiber intake. Does lower fiber mean higher quality feed? Yes, lower fiber usually is means higher starch, which is higher, uh, better, better digestible. Uh, but I mean, there's uh, uh, there's a trade-off because um, you want to feed the high digestible feed to mostly uh, non-ruminants or humans. Uh, and then the undigestible or the uh, high fiber diets to ruminants because they, they are the, the ones that, that are able to break down. So if you want to avoid competition with human food, then the high fiber diets to ruminants and then the more digestible like corn would be for humans. And how has the nutritional profile of dairy products changed over time with the innovations that came with these food additives or these feed additives rather? So, uh, so far we haven't really seen any effect on the, on the nutritional quality of the dairy products. Um, there is some suggestion that uh, when you use um, uh, lipids and, uh, and tannins, there may be a, a beneficial effect on the milk products. The, the, the fatty acid co composition of the milk will be changed. Um, so we are looking into that right now. So we are getting ready to do a, a new experiment looking at um, um, olive uh, and uh, not olive, uh, using uh, grape pomace. So we're using grape pomace and we analyze the grape pomace for tannins and for, for, for polyphenols and uh, lipids and all that. And so we have chosen one that will hopefully give us uh, a good idea or a good indication of its impact on the, uh, on the uh, quality of the uh, of the milk, and so we will be taking samples of milk, and then we'll be analyzing the fatty acid content of the milk and all that. If you use grape hummus, could you use byproducts from the wine industry to bake it? Yeah, exactly. So we are we are actually getting it from uh, from a. Uh, a winemaker, mm -hmm. yeah. So we're just getting this, uh, directly from a winemaker, and and use it for, for feed for for cattle. It's amazing. And how do you implement these additives into the diet of the cows? Uh, it, it depends on what they are. Um, here, so usually we just do a top dress, so we just put it on top of the of the feed, and then we kind of mix it uh, by hand. Um, in a in a commercial farm, it will probably be into the um, a mixer. They have a mixer wagon, 
So I just put it into the mixer wagon and, and deliver it that way. Um, with you know, if you're using olive, uh, so I keep saying olive. As if you're using grape pomace, mm -hmm. uh, you could do the same thing as well. Like you, you, the, the diet will change because usually you need much higher quantity of uh, the grape pomace than a feed additive. Uh, but yeah, so usually it's just in the in the mixer wagon and mix it well. Uh, we try to get each each bite will have some some of the uh, additive. So that's that's the best way is to have uniformly distributed. Mm -hmm. When you're performing research on the cows, how many cows are you looking at per study on average? If there's a way to say, yeah. So I, that depends on how effective the the additive is. Mm -hmm. The more effective the additive is, the less number of animals you need. Mm -hmm. And the more, the less effective the feed additive is, the more animals you need to be able to detect it. Uh, with, so with the seaweed, you know, uh, the 12 animals that we had at the initially was, uh, was adequate. Um, but if we are gonna test something that we think is uh, effective only like at 10%, then you're gonna need a lot more animals. You're gonna need like 60 or so animals to be able to detect that kind of difference. So that's a pretty small number. How do you extrapolate that when you're looking at commercial viability of these feed additives? Yeah, so uh, once you've done uh, research on that, once you uh, basically what you're trying to do when you do research is you have a statistical um, power to be able to say, this works and we, we have seen a, a, a statistically significant effect. Um, if so that basically that, that uh, number of cows and samples are representative of all cows. So that's, that's the premise of research is basically you are taking a representative sample and, and whatever works in that would be applicable to all other cows. So that's why we have, you know, if you, if you go into statistical terms, you have the, 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 the cow as a random effect. So basically it means that that cow represents any cow in the population. And it's not just that specific cow, but that is a representation of all potential cows uh, that you could have done research on. So that's why you can then use this research and apply it to a, to a larger population. That makes sense. When looking at large scale commercial viability, is there a concern that the emissions required to produce the food additives, for example, algae in this case, that the emissions to produce those will offset the emissions lost from the result? Yeah, so uh, you have to calculate the net emission, right? So the when you, when you produce those food additives, you're gonna have associated uh, impact as well. But that associated impact is mostly carbon dioxide, mm -hmm. right? So carbon dioxide you know, with methane, it's, uh, it's such a small effect. So if you calculate it by, by what is the carbon dioxide equivalent that you're reducing and what you're, what you're using to make the feed additive and transport it and, and all that, it's gonna be tiny. Uh, so we've done that kind of calculation and usually comes, comes up uh, maybe 1% or, or something like that of the total reduction that's uh, that's happening mainly because of the what you're reducing is so much more i guess valuable in terms of the the, the impact on the environment than uh, than what you're using so um, using a little bit of co2 and then reducing a lot of methane 
um, when you do the calculations, it's going to be quite small. But but that that's how you you really need to account for it. Like when you want to account how much reduction you've 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 gotten, you have to include the associated effects as well. So the production of the feed additive, the transportation of feed additive into the um, into the feed mill and into the uh, all the way in, in, into the place where it's it's used. So all of that needs to be accounted for. Um, and then you can you can see what's the net effect of using a feed additive. Mm. How much is methane from agricultural products impacting greenhouse gas emissions? Right. So the the, the breakdown is about for, uh, so, so the um, it, it depends on what type of livestock we are we're talking about. So here in in California, for example. Um, livestock and uh, from dairies and stuff uh, about 60 or so percent is is uh, methane is coming from uh, f- f- from uh, livestock populations so it just depends geographically where you are and how much it's uh, contributing uh, but in general if you look at what is the contribution of livestock uh, greenhouse gases which is uh, a lot a lot of it is methane um, in the US it would be four or five percent direct emissions and uh, globally, it's about 14.5%. And, mm. uh, and then if you go to places like New Zealand, it's almost 50%. Mm. So it really depends on where you are geographically and, and uh, what other industries are, are there as well. And in terms of policy, California is likely pushing, I would assume, a more progressive policy to reduce emissions. What are some of the ways that they're doing that at a more legislative level? Uh, yeah, so we have uh, on the books a legislation, uh, uh, SB 1383, which uh, mandates a reduction of methane by 40% by 2030. Uh, so that's already on the books and uh, it's been tracked. And, um, and so, yeah, so that's one piece of legislation that is uh, uh, mandatory um and and uh, basically tries to to get the levels of methane down to 40 percent by 2030. where do you see the future going in regards to your research well we, we are continuing on this uh, research to trying to re, uh, come up with uh, so both in terms of uh, feed additives that have the potential to use so we are as you know as a as a research University completely agnostic to what feed additive is going to be popular or or not. We we want to have as many tools as possible, right? So we are that's why we are working with different feed additives. So uh, so far we've done like I don't know uh, six seven different feed additives that we t- that we tested, uh, and we continue to do that. And we are also in a process of developing our own uh, feed additive as well. Um, so, well, d- depending whether we are going to be successful or not in terms of uh, getting grants from uh, um, uh, non-governmental uh, a- agencies. Uh, so I think that's the, the, always the hardest part is getting the funding to do some work. In terms of testing the feed additives, it's fairly straightforward. You know, we have uh, companies, particularly usually startup companies that have developed something that you work with them. And, you know, so that's pretty straightforward the other thing is to to start from scratch to do your own 
which is a lot harder because then you, uh, you have to bring in the, the funds with really no guarantee of success. I mean, you can, you can bet, I mean, you can try to convince people, you know, that uh, this is a good idea and uh, this is worth trying and all that. But uh, it's it's much harder route than uh, working with uh, uh, startups and, and uh, private companies that have already have something there that that they that, that you can see if it actually works and understand how it works and all that. But uh, yeah, we are now sort of uh, starting this area where we want to develop our own. So that's what's that's where I see in the next five years or so, I will see that uh, we would be doing more of our own instead of uh, testing uh, other products. And when you say our own, you mean UC Davis? Mm -hmm. Yes. And then would you guys commercialize that? Say it becomes yeah, successful? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, that's, that's the idea. I mean, uh, you develop it and then if it is uh, successful, if uh, then then it becomes like a, a spin-off, uh, uh, like a startup. Mm -hmm. you know, UC Davis pushes out startups at a rate of one a, one a month. Mm. So usually about 12 to 15 startups are coming up from UC Davis, uh, prof from professors that are, that are do doing this. And some of them are very, very successful. You see them on the market and all that. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the internal sort of ideas within, I mean, there's actually a, an office uh, with Office of Research that can help you to do that. Mm. They, will, they will set up a startup company for you. Um, and then, you know, they help you with all the patenting and everything else. So you work together with the university to develop this. For the students who are wanting to get involved, where do you think they should direct a lot of their attention moving forward in regards to reducing greenhouse gas emissions in the agricultural space? Uh, uh, there are multiple opportunities in terms of, uh, like from, there's from livestock, but also from, uh, uh, plant agriculture uh, also uh, i think we will be able to get a, a lot of reduction in in methane emissions in the next few years uh, there's a lot of interest in that and a lot of investment in that so i think uh, we will be able to get uh, substantial reductions um, once the regulatory framework has been established particularly in the us i think elsewhere it's, it's working fine but in the us the, we still struggle with the regulatory framework but once it's sorted out, I think we'll get uh, we'll, we'll get the reduction that we're looking for. But the the other issue is nitrous oxide. Uh, nitrous oxide is has not received as much attention, and it is you know the uh, the elephant in the room. I mean, it's a huge amount of uh, emissions, and and without re reducing nitrous oxide, I don't think agriculture can get into a net zero situation. Hmm. So to be able to get to net zero we need to be able to reduce uh, nitrous oxide significantly, whether it is by um, reducing the amount of fertilizer that's been used, uh, nitrate inhibitors. Uh, and there are some really cool technology that's coming out now. Uh, they're developing uh, plants like corn that can manufacture their own nitrogen. Um, so one of the UC Davis professors was involved in that. And I think that's just huge. I mean, um, basically means you don't need to put fertilizer. I mean, production of fertilizers, huge environmental impact and for, you know, production, transportation, when you apply it and the nitrous oxide that's going on, all of that has huge, huge uh, footprint. So if, the, if you have crops that can actually make their own nitrogen and you don't need to add nitrogen to it, I think that that would be a, a game changer. Definitely. You talked earlier about how You've been interested in agricultural emissions 
and reducing those emissions for a long time. Could you give some advice to students on how to follow their passions in academia? It seems oftentimes students come to college and feel pressure to pursue a route that may not be their most innate, the thing that they're really most passionate about. Uh, yeah, so I think the good thing here here at uh, UC Davis is that their students are uh, exposed to a number of different uh, fields and uh, areas of studies. Um, I, I teach this course, uh, Sustainable Animal Agriculture, mostly third year, fourth year students uh, from different majors, actually. And they sort of, for curiosity, they usually take it because it's, it's an elective course. And and I see since some really developing their, their passion um, for sustainability, um, uh, some on, on the livestock side on, on greenhouse gas emissions and, and some on uh, maybe improving productivity in uh, low-income countries. Um, so I, I get to talk with, uh, with students, you know, and, and then about their passions and where they, they, they can fit in. Because a lot of times when you come in to a university, you know, you don't, you don't really know where, where you want to go, what you're interested in. But then when you, when you see something, when you hear something that uh, sort of uh, piques your interest, then it's good to talk with the professors to see, you know, if uh, where they can get more information on that aspect, or there are other courses that they can take that would uh, help them decide whether this is the right they they want to go or not. Um, yeah, so uh, I've had the opportunity to talk with a lot of students on sustainability issues, and you know, and uh, I've had students who, after they graduate, they are working for companies in uh, as the sustainability officers and and, and stuff. So. You know, they followed their passion. You know, they they really wanted to make an impact and make a difference in terms of uh, uh, you know, improving the sustainability of agriculture. You know, with working with you know whether it be a, a ranch or whether it be a, a corporation that's producing tomatoes or whatever. You know, the, they all they all need a, a somebody that that is looking into this uh, sustainability, right? So, uh, almost every organization right now has a sustainability officer, uh, but it wasn't like that, you know, 10 years ago, uh, you wouldn't, you know, maybe one or two companies will have that, but now every company will have not just one, but a, a team of people that are looking into the sustainability. Um, so, you know, it's just uh, people will, will, once they hear some ideas that they are interested in, I think the best thing to do is really talk to professors and, and see where where that can take them and what kind of opportunity they will have if they pursue one area versus another and and you know um, try to develop their their passion by getting more information whether it is doing individual sort of reading uh, their own time or taking additional courses if there were a few action items people could take right now in regards to choosing better food that has less of an environmental impact, what would those be? I think for me, it's not about just environmental impact. You have to look at it holistically because if you're just thinking, okay, I'm, I'm gonna uh, have the minimum environmental impact on my food, then you will only eating be sugar because sugar has the lowest environmental impact because in terms of calorie, you know, the inputs, if you look at the inputs and how much calorie you can get, sugar cane, sugar beets, that, that's that's basically the lowest environmental impact uh, if you calculate it by, by how much calorie you're gonna get per unit of input. But that's not how, how nutrition works. I think you really need to look at the holistically, you know, what is what is my requirement? And and so 
avoiding over-consuming certain products, you know, over-consuming uh, animals for food like beef or whatever. Over-consuming that is is what you can you can do and just you know eating according to the requirements, um, which includes animal source food, uh, whether it is uh, meat or or uh, dairy, or, you know, uh, dairy products and all that. Um, has to be part of the diet. It's uh, I, I know people for whatever reason they don't want to um, avoid meat or or, or uh, animal source food, but. You know, if it is done for a different reason, that's fine. Now people, um, you know, people choose what they want. They want to do, but if it is done in on an environmental basis, then I think it's misguided. I think uh, there needs to be uh, a holistic approach of of nutrition and animal source food as part of that nutrition, without having to overconsume those uh, those products that that may have higher uh, environmental impact. Now, kind of switching gears back to the mathematical models you talked about in the very beginning, were those, could you speak a little bit more on what they were predicting? Because I am curious to see, you did those, what, roughly 10 years ago? Yeah. Have you been able to see now with our data what we currently have? Like, were you right? Well, so the the, the main thing was to predict methane emissions, right? That's, that's really the, uh, and... We continuously update those uh, those calculations, so it's not like uh, we've done it ten years ago and and we stopped there. The, there's an evolution of the these uh, models, and they change. And as we get more data, we include it. And then as we have a different way of analyzing things and developing models, then we include those techniques as well. So as the science evolves and as more data comes available, then our models also change. Um, so that's what that's what we've done, and uh, you know the IPCC models have been there for uh, well since 1996, um, and it's only now in 2000, uh, 2019 that uh, that that were changed. So comparing those models in '92 or '96 models to you know uh, to, to what we've done, you know, this is a big Im improvement there. But then you know in ten years time. They may not be the right models. Uh, there may be even more data, but there will be more data available, and and therefore you can have opportunity to update them. So the models should not be static; they need to be updated. And the animals themselves are changing. Mm -hmm. The type of animals they have 40 years ago now are, are different. Their requirements are different. Uh, so we've done that work also. We looked at over 40 years, and animals kept changing their requirement. They get they are bigger. They are more efficient. They're been selected for this and for that, so yeah, you know, we you can't have you can't expect one model to cover everything. So as things change, you have to update them. You have to you have to change them as well. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Professor Kabriov, this has been wonderful. Thank you for making the time for us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Right. Welcome back, Professor Kabriov. Thank you for joining us again following our first conversation. We wanted to talk to you about the new grant that you just received. Could you explain what that is? Yeah, sure. So we've been working with um, the University of California, Berkeley, and uh, University of California, San Francisco, on an idea of uh, using some new tools to try to uh, mitigate uh, climate, particularly the enteric methane emissions. So the idea is that um, when you look at 
what is happening with methane emissions, enteric methane emissions, it's uh, the, the microbes are the, uh, are responsible for these emissions, right? So the methanogens are the ones that are producing methane, and so the idea was why not target the methanogens directly? Mm. Um, and when we did this work with seaweed, um, one one of the things that we realized is that the actual number of methanogens actually doesn't change all that much. Uh, what happens is that there is a, a population-wide genetic um, changes where sort of the, some of the genes were downregulated, and, and that's why we see a huge reduction in emissions. Mm. So the idea was, well, why can't we do that ourselves and have methanogens that have lower, uh, reduced, uh, downregulated genes? So, and then if you introduce this to the animals, then you may have the you may have methanogens. You don't change anything with the animal behavior. You just have less methane, a lot less methane. Um, but the the challenge is that we don't have the tools to do that right now. Um, so that's the uh, teaming up with the Innovative Genomics Institute at UC Berkeley, and that's exactly what they do. And they that's where CRISPR was developed uh, first. And that's what they've been doing for, for a long period of time. And, and so we teamed up with, with, with them to, to try to tackle this, this issue. And so the UC Berkeley team will be developing a tool to, to allow us uh, to be very specific genes within the methanogenic genome to uh, downregulate that for, for methanogenesis so that we can then use this as a additive, if you like, and to introduce it into um, cows and have the methanogens be uh, hopefully outcompeting the other methanogens and become the dominant methanogen within the population. And that way, we have all the fermentation and everything else going on, and methanogens are, are, are there, but you don't have that uh, methane production. So that's, that's the whole idea, is having that tool and be able to do that and, and test it in vitro or in, in the lab first, and then test it within, within animals as well. So that's that's the project was about. Would that be a one-time injection supplement, I don't know how to phrase it, versus a constant feeding of the algae? Yeah. Uh, so this is not algae, yeah, right? yeah. this is completely nothing to do with algae at all. Yeah, so instead of constantly having to feed them new yeah. algae, it would be like a one-time. Yeah, not, not algae. Not, nothing to do with algae, right? So this is going to be just the, the 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 methanogens are being downregulated, right? Yeah. So so I guess that question is, would you give those methanogens or this uh, additive one time or period or, or on yeah. uh, on a constant time? Yeah. So yeah. So I think uh, that that's something that we're going to be uh, working on. So okay. the some of the some of the things that we have planned to do is. To do exactly that, is it just a one th one th one time introduction? Is that enough? If it is enough, you know, uh, or if it's not enough, then at what time are you going to introduce it? So we're going to be introducing them uh, at uh, at the younger age before the rumen is actually developed, and see if that would be. I mean, we believe that if you do it at the right at the beginning, before the rumen is completely developed then you will have established this this microbiome and that microbiome will continue for the rest of the life. Yeah. So that's the ideal scenario yeah. and that's what we sh we're shooting for. But at the same time, we're also gonna be doing some experiments where 
we will look at adult animals that have already got, you know, their rumen developed and everything else. They have the microbiome is there. And then we will introduce it at that point. And then we'll see if there is a competition going on and which ones, if the, if the new additive will be able to outcompete or not. And then we can try it one time. We can try it on a daily basis and, and see mm-hmm. uh, what they are. So, but ideally for us, it's one shot at the beginning with the uh, pre-ruminant before the, 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 the rumen is completely formed uh, and matured. That's the, that's the time. And we have evidence from other trials that show that when you do that at the beginning, you, the, the, the effect is long lasting. Yeah. And, and because we want this to, to be applicable to all animals, whether they are uh, intensively managed or they are grazing on range, it wouldn't matter if, if we do it this way. So the potential impact is absolutely huge because if we are able to do this at the, at the calf stage, then every animal potentially uh, in, in, uh, around the world would be able to uh, potentially reduce the methane emissions quite substantially. Yeah. I mean, the, it's not inconceivable that we won't see any methane emissions at all. Uh, if, if it is now, this is the wild yeah. Yeah, scenario yeah, yeah. and a wildly successful, a wildly successful trial would show we have the, the, the tools developed. The tools will show that we can affect uh, at a population-wide, population-wide uh, genetic downregulation of the methanogens and then we can harvest those, introduce them into calves, and get them um, settled and, and become the dominant uh, or, or the main methanogens within that system. And therefore, we have uh, almost no methane emissions. So that's what we're going for. And so that's, you know, if we are widely successful, that's going what's going to happen. And um, the, so the cost is not going to be that much if we, if you do that, then... It, then it will be just uh, like a, a uh, like a probiotic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, people take probiotic. I mean, probiotic is just bacteria, right? There's no, mm-hmm. there's, there's not much into it. It's a lot of it is live, beneficial bacteria. So that's exactly the same thing here as well. We will have live methanogens in, in a in a powder form that the uh, the animal will consume until they become ruminants. And and then that's it. Then they they will have established that, those methanogens in their microbiome, and and after that there won't be any uh, uh, any methane emissions. So that's that's the whole idea. Yeah. I think what I was trying to compare was we have to constantly give them algae. It, yeah. it were algae, yeah. mm-hmm. but instead, yeah. when this potential new technology yeah. would make it a one time thing. Yes. Okay. Yes. That that's, a, yes. Yeah. That, exactly. That's what we are. Hoping yeah, for, yeah. but we're going to be testing it both ways. We're going to be testing it yeah. at one time, pre-ruminants establishing the the uh, the population within the animal, or on a daily basis also in an adult animal to try to change the, the methanogens that are there. So, so we don't know which one will be, you know, out competing which one. Um, yeah. You know, but uh, this is something that would be quite interesting and. We'll be doing a, a lot of lab work before we get into the animal work. Uh, so there's a lot of in vitro work that will happen, and then we'll go to the uh, to the animal work. Is the research going to look across generations as well and see if the mutations to the microbiome will carry over from that initial first pill or whatever it ends up being in terms of form of ingestion, if that will carry over from generation, or if the following generation will also need to take one pill? Uh, that's that's a good question. Uh, w- right now, we don't know. Um, mm-hmm. That's probably what we we're going to be doing. So, the way it happens is that uh, I mean, if you have a 
a group of cows that have a certain microbiome and that microbiome includes this new introduced edited sort of, uh, methanogen. And if they are not anywhere near other type of uh, animals, then then you would presume that that will be carried from one because mm -hmm. the way it happens is that they get inoculated from from adult animals, yeah. right? So the, that's how they build their microbiome. You know, for the first few weeks of their life, they are basically like us or like pigs because they they don't have a rumen, they cannot digest uh, stuff, and they are basically on milk and and things like that, right? That then they develop the rumen. So the mm -hmm. way they develop the rumen is that they get inoculated. You know, with uh, with uh, bacteria and archaea and all these other microbi uh, microbes coming in from the adult animal. So, if there is no other adult animal, and then they they are only with with, the, with those that have those edited uh, genes, then they, then probably it will go in and, and and they will have that as well. So, but it's good it's good to check and uh, yeah. to see if that if that happens. Yeah, I mean that would be huge in terms of we talked earlier about input cost to energy saving tools. Yeah. I mean, that would be yeah. massive. Yeah, absolutely. That would be a game changer for sure. If this were to be created and be successful to the highest extent that you think it possibly could, how would we distribute this to farmers everywhere and people raising rumin ruminants? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, this will be the same way that uh, a lot of farmers receive their vitamins and minerals and, and, and all that. So uh, even uh, probiotics. So a lot, of, a lot of animals right now are on some sort of probiotic, if you like, you know, yeast or, or uh, bacillus uh, subtilis kind of thing where uh, they use it for improved performance, improved health and all that kind of stuff. So this will be the same thing. It's, it's, it's basically um, a, a direct fed microbial, which is available right now. So would it? Would you guys sell the technology to a company or partner with one to like distribute it? Would it be open source so any company could get it? Like that's kind of more where I was going. Okay, yeah. So the idea probably is that uh, it could be uh, patented mm -hmm. by the university. Uh, so this is this is all starting from university research. research. So it could be patented by the university. We could have a startup uh, ourselves, and we could have you know uh, joint startup with our, with others, and uh, or we could work with uh, big companies that have already uh, established uh, are in this business as well. So there are different possibilities mm -hmm. once we we know what we're dealing with, uh, and you know if if it is. Uh, if it lends itself to be marketed that way, then we'll do that. Um, so, yeah, I think that there are different ways. But what I see is, if it's successful, the first thing to do, obviously, is to to patent it, right? Mm -hmm. So the patent will will go through, and then once it's patented, then um, as a matter from from the the people who are involved in this, whether to go uh, through a, a startup mechanism. I mean, UC Davis or, and Berkeley. I mean, they they have launched. In, you know, hundreds of those, uh, of startups, and you know, so there is a, a very rich um, experience there that we can draw from. Um, or it might make sense to work with uh, companies that are that are in this field that are selling additives and and all that, and and partner with them or license the the, uh, uh, the patents. So you know, there's different models that we can we can use. Could you briefly explain 
the dynamic of the grant being with UCSF, UC Davis, and Berkeley? Because that last explanation made me think, would the patent be Davis's? Berkeley's because they invented like no, how would it work? The patent would be University of California. Oh, okay. Mm. So that well all three are part of the University of California. Mm -hmm. So the University of California will hold the patent. Okay. So that is that applicable to any anyone's research at a specific UC? Can the University of California be the only one who has it? Or is there even a difference really between UC Davis and the University of California when it comes to owning rights? Uh, I don't want to give you a wrong answer okay, here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I, I don't know, but I mean, well, I think there are two mechanisms. There's the mechanism by which each university has their own, which is most, most of the time what's happened. But then, then also there's a mechanism for the, all of the universities mm -hmm. uh, within the University of California system to, to have, the, the system will have that as well. So I think there's, there's both mechanisms because I know that a lot of stuff that happens at UC Davis will stay at UC Davis. And uh, there could be some that goes to the, the system as well. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how it's divided, but um, but I know that we have, uh, the, the UC system will be able to handle it. Okay. And could you touch a little bit on the dynamic between the three campuses involved and the specific role that each campus is going to be playing in the grant? Yeah, so the the grant is uh, will be led by UC Berkeley, the you know specifically the Innovative Genomics Institute, um, and they're going to be doing the development of the tools, so the, the the tools to edit m microbes at the population level. So that's what they're going to be doing. It's a, it's a new tool that they will be creating, and this tool will be applicable to a lot of different things. So we're going to be using it for climate. UCSF are going to be using it for humans. So um, the the technology is basically it's it's going to be applicable to a lot of things. Um, so um, that's that's the role of uh, UC Berkeley. That's why they're leading it because that's, they're going to be developing the technology. And then UC Davis basically looking using that technology to edit uh, methanogens and then try to get rid of uh, methane from ruminants. So that's how, that's the, what UC Davis' role would be in vitro or in lab and in vivo in the field work. And then uh, similarly, UCSF will use that technology uh, that's uh, then applied to a, a human um, disease or you know some, some challenges there as well. Mm -hmm. Could you explain the importance of this technology versus more traditional CRISPR technologies? Uh, well, I'm not a geneticist, but I, I, I can try. So, uh, so the, the, the CRISPR technique has, you know, has, has been around now for a, for a few years and uh, it's very targeted and, and uh, there are different ways of, of doing things. But uh, so the, the one that's been used uh, these days is to identify the right genes or to, to if there is uh, some 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 place that you want to cut, you know, instead of having the traditional way of breeding and introducing all kind of, uh, this one is very very specific. You go directly to where you want, you cut it, or you introduce something and 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 repair it. So that's that's the the, the beauty of CRISPR is that it's quick and it is very targeted. And while traditional breeding, you don't know what you're gonna get, right? It's really shot in the dark. While this one is very very specific, so. It works, you know, uh, there's uh, tools you can do for plants, for animals and all that. But when it comes to a population-wide um, genomic uh, uh, sort of editing, we don't have that tool. 
at the moment. So that's why UC Berkeley is going to develop that tool. And you know, they are in the best position because they are the ones who started the whole thing. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank well, you for the update. Yeah, it's a yeah. pleasure. We look forward to hearing how it goes. Yeah, maybe we'll get back together in five, seven years to, <laughs> to talk about it. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, it'll be wonderful. <laughs> to continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you will find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.